I have exciting news for British listeners of the Cracks podcast. As you might have seen from the title of this episode, it's about stats all about Americans. I'm sure you're listening because it's fascinating that Americans are so weird or so nuts. Well, would you like to see a crazy American in your country soon? It's going to be me at the London Podcast Festival. We're doing our first ever UK live show. That episode is Sunday, 8th September at 7 p.m. at King's Place, which is a venue near King's Cross in the heart of London. Tickets are available in the food notes, and I hope we will see you at the London Podcast Festival. Cracked in the UK. How about that? Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also keenly aware of how I intro this show today. And I, I mean the very beginning of the intro, uh, Clam, Champ, etc. Uh, it's a lot of self-description, and it's a lot of definitive statement of, this is who I am, dang it, Clam, Champ, etc., because uh, because how we talk about ourselves is important. Uh, how we talk about ourselves matters. As the author Kurt Vonnegut once said in his book Mother Night, quote, we are what we pretend to be, so we must be careful about what we pretend to be, end quote. That, that also refers to a more global uh, what we see ourselves as, how we represent, and it speaks to the power of the data that we're diving into in this episode. Because our topic is polls and facts that will make you understand America or not. One more time, that is polls and facts that will make you understand America or not. Because my guest today writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. His true name is Jason Pargin, and he has a fantastic new column that sparked this episode. It digs into a range of polls, many of them based on Americans doing self-assessments that paint a fascinating picture of who you and I might really be, or at least who we think we are or pretend to be. And I don't think this needs any more setup than that. So please sit back or stand up and let everyone know that, yes, you are the most normal American, no matter what Alex and Jason's fancy polls might say. Either way, here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. So, Jason, this uh, this fantastic column is called 20 Facts That Will Make You Understand America or Not. And, uh, and, and that's what it is. It's very exciting to learn a lot and have so many more questions about, about all the rest of our people. There's this thing I say on the podcast sometimes when we'll hit an individual point that I will say, well, gosh, we could have done a whole episode just about that <laughs> yeah. point. This has like... 15 of those (laughs) because because what I've done is trying to gather a whole bunch of data points that paint a fairly clear yet extremely confusing somehow (laughs) portrait of the average American and what the average American thinks. And this data is almost entirely done from polls and surveys. So there's a, the point we're going to make And then there's sort of a meta point, which is, okay, here's what X number of Americans say they believe about blank. But the additional meta point is actually, here's how many Americans chose to say this to a pollster. Right. 
And that also is extremely telling, but not for the same reason the thing they said is telling. So that also is part of it. But from these many points of data and these poll results, it does start to form a picture. And then one of the first things we've got here is uh, political correctness. Why don't we get right into it? Because this first poll here found that 80% of Americans say the country is getting too PC, too much. And that's an article from The Atlantic pulling that out. Yeah, and this is a perfect example of what we were just saying. Because as soon as that went viral, some other people pointed out that the term politically correct is a pejorative. Like, you've loaded the survey that... Saying, do you feel like the country is getting too politically correct is like saying, do you dislike scumbags? (laughs) It's like you've all automatically used a term that is only used in a negative sense. That, That term, as far as I know, going back to its invention in the 70s, has never been used by the people actually advocating, you know, policing speech or or anything like that it's only been used by critics right (laughs) but we will list some others because there was another link here where they did a study where 56 percent of people say that people are too easily offended these days and there's another one where 71 percent feel like political correctness has silenced necessary discussions in society that one's from the cato institute they're a pretty conservative operation but As far as I can tell, you can get different results based on how you word the question, but you always get a majority, including people on the left, saying, yeah, people people worry too much these days about being offended or whatever. Yeah, especially interesting that the terminology can be flattened out into a much less pejorative thing and we still get... A majority of people in these couple of polls or or even an overwhelming majority saying that, ah, there's just too much of people being thoughtful is how I think of it. But but other people don't. Well, and I think, for instance, I would answer that question. Yes, I would be part of that majority. But I think my examples would be different. Like, I don't see why people being offended when an athlete doesn't stand for the anthem. I don't, I don't see why that's not an example of political correctness where you're trying to enforce. No, the politically correct thing to do when the anthem plays is to stand and put your hand in your heart. And anyone who does it does not do that. They're doing the politically incorrect thing. I I think if you're making demands about how we wish happy holidays to each other, if you say, no, happy holidays is no good. You must, specify Christmas and exclude all the other holidays that are going on around this time of year, I feel like you are trying to enforce political correctness because you are making the more specific demand. You you are policing speech and saying the greeting must be delivered a certain way. So for me, if you're one of the 25%, 40%, depending on the poll, whatever, who says, oh, no, no, I don't feel like people are too offended these days at all. I envy you (laughs) because I live in a world where it feels like people of all political stripes have something where they feel the need to kind of dunk on other people for using the wrong term, or this is a sign that you're not patriotic enough, or you're not sympathetic enough, or you're not 
something enough. Yeah, it's almost uh, a unifying realization there to realize that everyone is upset about being told that what they are saying is is not thoughtful enough of other people or or deficient in terms of respect to other people. So many of us feel like that's going on. Uh, maybe maybe the poll numbers should almost be higher if, if people were cognizant of the fact that the, the term political correctness only gets used for one kind of politics when it could be being used for all types. And that's why this is on the list, because those poll results, I feel like, have a heavy left versus right breakdown. Yeah. Where it is mostly people talking about, you know, well, there's important discussions that can't that we're not able to have. I automatically assume that most of those people are saying, well, why can't we just admit that black people commit more crime or, or why can't <laughs> we just admit that that there's only two genders? I feel like that's the side that is most often complaining these days that when you talk about political correctness, they do only aim it in one direction. So going back to what we said to kick it all off, when you ask this in a poll, how is the person interpreting it? Because if I gave my, my poll res results saying, yes, I have opinions that I can't discuss because the, the backlash would be too much or in certain company that you would automatically tag me as a right winger that I like, because now it almost people who are anti PC out on the internet, it's very easy to also find where they've told like a lot of racist jokes in the past. So it's like, okay, are you only defining PC as you can't tell racist jokes anymore? Right. <laughs> so this is where the poll tells us something that most people see this as a problem and some queer majority, but it, you wish you could ask 10 more questions and then you would probably realize, oh, no two people are defining this the same way. It's very exciting that there's at least some unification across that spectrum, even though even though in general it's about us arguing all the time, too. So I don't know. Stressful, stressful unity, I guess. We're going to have a lot more examples like this where it feels like the terms of the debate have been set in a certain way. And that's a problem because, as you alluded to, there's one personality type that no one on earth likes, and that's <laughs> the fun-hating scold. Yeah. That this is the person when other people are laughing or joking, comes in and says, well, that's not appropriate. This is the person who, when other people are at a pizza party, is like, well, how much fat is in that pizza this is we shouldn't be eating this like if you have kids that come to your house on halloween and you're like oh no i don't give out candy because childhood obesity is out of control in this country it <laughs> what you said is true candy is unhealthy you know childhood diabetes is a big problem but still those children will hate you and they will come back and vandalize your house <laughs> so because the context here is we both work for crack.com. We've done plenty of articles about how movies still like to slip in like sexist tropes and things that kind of subtly bias the audience in a way that you would not expect from liberal Hollywood. Liberal Hollywood actually reinforces a bunch of weird ideas in the name of comedy, in the name of whatever. Yeah. You know, Hollywood was treating trans people like a punchline up till just a few years ago. Some movies probably still do it. So when you point those things out, 
and you yourselves, you're trying to be funny and lighthearted about it. And it comes off like you're scolding people for an inappropriate joke or for pushing things too far. I could tell you from experience that makes some people super angry. Yep. <laughs> and I under, I do understand it, but that to me is what's interesting about this because now you have a majority of people saying, you know what, this is a problem in America that, that, you know, we, you can't just say what you mean, but there's so much to unpack there. This is what this list is about because with each and every one of these, you're going to say, gosh, that's interesting. That's, I wonder why. And the answer is we, we kind of don't know. You could write an entire book on why, but yeah. for now, all we have is most people say political correctness is a big problem. And that particular element of the PC opinion people have, I feel like part of the the resistance to what's considered political correctness is just that it, it takes a lot of emotional labor and mental labor to bother to think through why people are upset about what you're saying or, or deal with it, because they're not really defending the content of what they're saying. They're just saying there's too much resistance to this truth that they just feel we can all assume is true. And that might tie into a larger lack of empathy for other people. And we've got a couple of polls here about the overall level of empathy among average Americans as reported by by these Americans. So my favorite stat on the entire list, I'm sorry, my second favorite, my, my first favorite is one that has to do with how many people confess to peeing in the shower. But that's <laughs> later. The second favorite stat is this one that says four in 10 Americans would save the life of their dog over a foreign tourist. Mm. As in, if a <laughs> runaway bus was heading down the street and your beloved dog was standing there and a tourist from Vietnam or whatever is standing there with his camera, four in 10 admit they would save their dog instead of the tourist. <laughs> I know it, it sounds like I'm laughing when I read that result and I'm reading something that's actually extremely alarming. Right. But this is funny to me because they obviously did not do the experiment to see what people would actually, that would actually be against the law to do that experiment. They only asked people that you can get different results by tweaking it. If it, instead of your dog, it was just a dog, then people will save the tourist because of course I'm not going to sacrifice, you know, if it's just a stray or right. if it's my neighbor's dog, like who cares that they love their dog as much as I love mine, I'm still going to save the tourist. And if instead of a foreign tourist, it was like someone, you know, of course people will save the person. Yeah. Talk about a <laughs> lot to unpack <laughs> because everyone you would think would have a very clear morality in mind in terms of how, who should be saved and who should not and when, and that sort of thing. It seems like a very clear kind of black and white moral question. Yeah. It turns out it's not, it turns out it comes down to whose dog it is probably what country the tourist is from. Like if they're from Canada, you wouldn't necessarily know, but the fact that they specified tourist, like the poll questioner knew that this is like the most dehumanizing type of person you can have in your city. Um, I find this fascinating. 
Like after the fifth or sixth weird moral trolley problem question, when did people just start saying, why are you pulling me in this particular way? I don't know if people know the trolley problem is a, a trope. It's like a, a moral question of who do you save and how in a, in a situation. But like it's, it's a lot of refining the situation of what dog type and what person type you're choosing between. And this is why I wish that in the future they may have the technology to scan your brain and know immediately what you would actually do in a given situation. And I would like to know the true answer to this because, again, there's no way to run the experiment. Yeah. I would love to know what percentage <laughs> of people would actually save the dog. Because you would think, well, of those 60%, like they probably said what they thought would be the more PC answers. Like, no, I would, of course, save the, the tourist. Human lives are worth more than, than dog lives. But even when they were under no pressure to be honest about it, he still had 40% saying, oh, no, I'd save the dog. So <laughs> I would love to know what it really is. It is unknowable, as some of these on here are unknowable. Yeah. But a even clearer picture will start to form. And this is why hopefully everyone listening is now starting to understand what I mean when I say all of these numbers form a clear picture and also a very confusing picture. Do you think if people were actually in the situation, they would be even more likely to be saving their dog? Or would their sort of just human kindness take over and be more likely to save the person? I think in the moment, what would happen is I would rationalize, oh, the dog only weighs 65 pounds. I can probably pick her up and get her out of the way, but this guy, I probably can't. I probably can't move him. Like if they were both oh. laying there injured or something. Like I yeah. think the yeah. in reality, I would be saving my beloved dog, but I think I in that split second, I would try to convince myself I was doing it for some other reason because that's the way humans are. Like we, we will find a way to live with ourselves. Um, but I don't know. I would love to sit here and say, oh no, I recognize that that tourist, like they may be a, you know, a father, they may have children back home, family you know, back home. They, they may cure cancer in the future. Like, you know, logically, of course you save the person, but in the moment, I, I don't know myself well enough, but it's the same thing with the trolley problem. The trolley problem problem, which I suspect some people actually are not familiar with it's where there's like a runaway train or a trolley running down the tracks and the tracks split two directions and one direction. It's like your best friend or your wife, the person you love most. And the other direction, it's like 12 strangers and you pull, you can pull the lever to send the train one way or the other. But the key is, is that whoever dies, you made it happen by pulling the lever. You killed that person. Right. So do you kill the person you love or do you kill the strangers? In reality, you would find ways to make the choice you're making on emotion. You would frame it as if it's logical. Like you would find some, you're like, well, really these deaths, these 12 deaths are the fault of the people who made this defective train. Like, yeah. like I can't be blamed <laughs> for these 12 people dying when it's whoever manufactured the brakes on this trolley. Like, of course I'm going to save my wife, but these 12 people, they can't, I'm not their villain. The villain is, is whoever was asleep at the factory when they made that trolley's brakes and whoever is supposed to inspect them. So because I'm absolved of blame, 
then I'm, yeah, I'm going to save my wife because it's not, this isn't my problem. I didn't ask to be in this situation. Like you would find a way to make your, make yourself okay with it. This is the point. Like these thought experiments, you could set each poll respondent down and, and dig into what they really meant. The only interesting fact is that that's how many people responded that way. What that means Good question. Feel free to spend the rest of the day thinking about it yourself. I know I have. <laughs> and then this next set of, of data here is a huge batch of it. And uh, broadly, it finds that empathy among young people has fallen 40% since the year 2000. Uh, and that's drawing on a meta-analysis of decades of studies that use the interpersonal reactivity index, which is a standard measure of empathy and a couple other ways to uh, test people's, just uh, how much they feel about uh, other people's troubles or troubles in stories and uh, other general things about how much we care about each other. So they, looking at all of those different studies, found that empathy among young people has dropped a lot. Yeah, dropped by 40%, which I, I know that that sounds like like, how do you measure empathy So say that it dropped 40%? It's like saying that love has dropped by 33%. <laughs> like, how did you measure it? But it's, this, it's just this battery of questions that they've been asking for decades. Like, it's, they, it's the same test. Yeah. And it has to do with measuring a bunch of psychological factors, and including, like, your ability to empathize with people or, or to imagine yourself in their situation, things like that. And no matter how you test it, no matter who does it, levels have plummeted in the last 20 years. And you generally see what appears to be kind of what was universal concern and empathy for other people kind of replaced with fierce tribalism and like fierce defense of your own group. And if you've spent five minutes on the internet, you already know this is a thing, but the results that 40% drop is stunning and maybe the most important stat in America of, of everything measuring the state of the country. The fact that among college students, you've seen this huge drop. And again, them telling a pollster, no, I don't feel sorry for people who are not in my situation. That is remarkable and shocking, and many, many, very much smarter people have been trying to figure out why. My guess is that it's not one thing, that it's a bunch of factors. And they've got the the factors and elements here broken out quite a bit. The meta-analysis was by a team led by Professor Sarah Conrath at the University of Michigan, and the, the Interpersonal Reactivity Index, this standard survey, it measures four traits. Uh, one is empathic concern, which is people's other-oriented feelings of sympathy for other people's misfortunes. So, you know, just kind of empathy, what we think of as that. The second one is perspective-taking, which is just people's ability to see other people's perspectives. Third one is fantasy, which is how much we care about what happens to fictional characters and to people in books, movies, stories. And then the fourth one is personal distress, which is just how much distress we feel during other people's misfortunes. So when we're having empathy for people, how much it distresses us. And they specifically found that big 40% drop in the basic empathic concern, and then also a noticeable drop in perspective taking, but pretty standard levels on fantasy and personal distress. So that almost makes me feel like 
whatever this drop is coming from, it's coming from something in real life. Like we still feel about the same about stories and having empathy impacts us about the same level, but just something is going on in real life, either in actuality or our perception where we decided that uh, uh, empathy for other people is not something we can do so much of anymore. This is the meta story of America in 2019 that some would say culminated in Trump's election because this is a, a Trump episode. Ah. But I fully believe and have said on this podcast many times, I believe Donald Trump is a symptom of this. Yeah. Going back to 2000 as your starting point, you had 9-11, obviously, that occurred in 2001. Then you had in 2007, 2008, you had the financial crisis start with Lehman Brothers collapse. Basically, the the economy never recovered from. Like Man. That's where you saw the birth of this more gig-type economy, more service jobs with no benefits, more instability. You, you, you kind of... A lot of the anxiety now goes back to 2007. There's a lot of world events you could blame it on that say, well, these are people who grew up in that reality. They grew up in their formative years under the paranoia of 9-11, the paranoia of, you know, like this, this narrative of the clash of civilizations and then the paranoia of the government and the Patriot Act and kind of the backlash to all that, the government reading all of your emails and all of that stuff. And then those who grew up trying to find a job or getting an education in the post-2008 era and suddenly all of their prospects go away and, and knowing that they'll never be able to repay their student loans. You could put all of those things in there and say it's due to world events. This has jaded our youngsters. But here's the problem. These numbers were not like this during Vietnam. These numbers were not like this during previous much worse economic downturns. These numbers were not like this during world events that had much higher death rates. Yeah. What changed is the internet and social networking. And what changed is the big cultural thing that we're all having to deal with that can also be related back to the political correctness issue earlier, which is that if you live alone and then you are made to live in a place with four or five roommates there will be a difficult adjustment period. <laughs> if you are made to live with four or five roommates in a house that has no walls and where you can hear what everyone else says or does at all times, you will at some point want to kill all of your roommates. Much of what makes you polite and calm in life is your separation from people that you're able to not have to be around them all the time. Anyone who has worked customer service has come away with a lower opinion of humanity <laughs> than they had before they had to wait on 37 cranky people a day, every, every day at lunchtime or whatever, you know, and trying to juggle all of the tables and seeing how some people don't leave tips that's just the way it is, because if in the course of your day working as a server or as a cashier, if you 
wait on 500 people, but one of them is incredibly rude or racist or mean or insulting, you will only remember that person. The internet is magical in its ability to filter out everyone but the assholes so that you can go on Twitter and you only see the worst of the worst takes. So you will get an impression over time that the world is just full of horrible people where if you had not been exposed to them prior to that, you could easily just assume everyone is kind of like you. But once you're exposed to other people who are not like you and they are very passionate about how much they're not like you and they're very open for their criticism of things that you hold dear. Yeah, you start to hate those people and you start to only like the people who are just like you. And this is not even just a racist thing or a hate group thing. People who are extremely progressive get to where they can only tolerate other extreme progressives. Like they literally cannot tolerate listening to someone talk about God and country and the national anthem or whatever. There's probably no comparable phenomenon, at least to the level the internet does that. Maybe, maybe local news when that started to become a thing, making people just more scared of crime is like the closest parallel, but that's, that's limited to a very specific time block and, and you don't interact with it directly. And it's, it's, it's nothing on that level. And you were not interacting with the public. You were interacting with professional reporters, newsreaders, entertainers, and it's true. Oh yeah. They were filtering out just the scariest of the stories to make it sound like your neighbors are deviants or uh, rapists or whatever. But today you have the news article and then you have the 500 comments under the news article where, you know, all of the activity is around the people saying the most outrageous thing because everyone on the internet or most people on the internet are addicted to antagonizing other people because it's fun or because it's, it's a, a tension release or just feels good and because cruelty is addictive, but a whole lot of politics now is just saying whatever makes the other side angriest. Even if the thing that makes them angry, if they're mad, because what you said is just clearly wrong, you'll say something clearly wrong just because the bad people are screaming and therefore you must have done some good for the world. And so even a well-meaning feminist can feel pressure to go on Twitter and phrase it as men are trash because this makes the bad people scream. It's like, well, yeah, but also it's just kind of an awful thing to say, but you are encouraged to phrase everything in the most antagonistic way possible and just be the most antagonistic version of yourself because we've decided this is just the tone conversations take online and i mean like my grandparents are now like this so you know or like our our collective grandparents are you know posting like these you know angry donald trump memes and <laughs> right. the for the first 78 years of your life you never had a single concern about a trans person using your restroom and now this is your obsession It's only your obsession because you notice that people are like mad about it. And so you jumped in and took a side 
and you had now have used this as a basis to hate a bunch of other people for something that in reality has never impacted your life even once. You have never in your life heard of a single person ever being harmed in a bathroom by a trans person. You have been in a public restroom with a trans person many times and you never knew. But now you've adopted this only because it's what everyone is yelling about and this is what we do. We find the things that make everyone the most angry and latch onto them instead of the rational response, which is, this doesn't impact me at all, and I'm extremely busy, and I have enough anxiety in my life, I don't need to take this on. I have enough jerks that I interact with in the actual world around me. I don't need to go seek out conflict over something that has never bothered me. But by God, you can get people to take up any cause like that the national anthem thing that I keep bringing up yeah, that playing the national anthem, like during the broadcast, that didn't used to be a thing at all. They didn't used to do that. It, it, they just yeah. came in after it was over and they started playing football, but it's like, no, by God, from the very founding of America, <laughs> it is sacred that prior to professional football games, we stand for the anthem. And that if you are opposed to that, you are opposed to the very fabric upon which this nation was built. It's like, you don't stand <laughs> up in your living room when the anthem is playing. You're sitting there like like digging your beer out of the out of the fridge and you're you're trying to you're waiting for your nachos to heat up. Like you're not sitting there treating it like a sacred moment. You invented it as an excuse to hate half the country. It is summertime. We live in apparently the hottest nation that has ever existed on the earth, if you're in the United States. Uh, I don't know about the UK and elsewhere right now because I'm not there. We'll be in the UK soon. Point is, summer is prime ice cream season. And so why don't you celebrate that and enjoy that by getting yourself some Ben & Jerry's, the best kind of ice cream around. There is always a new flavor to discover with this ice cream company. That's one of the best things about them. And this flavor here is called Coffee Coffee Buzz Buzz Buzz. And the, the Buzz 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 has no spaces uh, in, the, in the listing of it. So I hope I delivered it properly because that's how it should be. Buzz Buzz Buzz. It is coffee ice cream, like it sounds. And then it has espresso bean fudge chunks. Holy cow. Guys, espresso and fudge are teaming up. They are uniting. This is an ice cream that will give you a little bit of energy, I figure, as you eat it. There are so many other flavor options, too. For example, if you want a late night snack, maybe you want something like a chocolate chip cookie dough. One of those classic flavors that they were, believe it or not, a pioneer of out of Ben & Jerry's. They made it more of a thing, and you should enjoy theirs when you're hankering for it. I'm so excited about them, I use the word hankering. I don't do that all the time, all right? It's just good ice cream. So treat yourself to your favorite flavor anywhere ice cream is sold, or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com. One thing to repeat for our British listeners who are enjoying this just voyeuristic look into how weird Americans are. Well, a weird American's coming to you at the London Podcast Festival. We're doing our first ever live cracked podcast Sunday, 8th September. And that weird American is me. I cannot wait to do our first ever UK show. And I hope I see you there. Tickets are in the food notes.
there are a lot of polls showing that we tend to only befriend people who are exactly like us or or at least similar to us in their politics and background and a bunch of other factors and you would you would think more and more people are meeting a more diverse group of people especially because the country gets more and more diverse but poll wise that seems to not be true yeah and we've got we'll have a list of links here but around 90% of evangelical christians say their friends are similar to them yeah that 90. means that there includes that's a similar religion, 91%. Similar political views, is they say 86%. And similar ethnicity, 88%. There's another poll that showed about 80% of white people's friends are also white. And that about 40% have no friends outside of their own race. And you can say, well, yeah, but why are you specifying? Why are you just calling out the white people there? And... The issue there is that mathematically, if you're part of a minority, it's actually harder to only have friends of your own race because for many black people, like they may be the only black kid in their school. So for them, they have to befriend white kids or else they're just not going to have friends. Whereas if the school is 95% white, then it's extremely easy to only have white friends. So some of this is just the way it shakes out like that. But this is a very segregated country. Segregated in terms of neighborhoods, businesses we we frequent, movies we watch, music we listen to. The numbers are shocking all around. This is a big, big part of all each of these previous things. Because if you choose to be around people who never like challenge you or never call you out on the jokes you're making or whatever, the more you insulate yourself, the more you hate it when you run into someone who opposes it. Yeah. And the less the less visible the bad things you're doing or the bad things you are thinking are because there's no one to bounce it off of because what you've decided what's acceptable in my little group here this is the immutable law of the universe and and that's that. So it becomes a self-sustaining thing. That's why a lot of we talk about empathy it's kind of been replaced by tribalism because you will see in the polling a backlash when a politician gets caught in some sort of a racist scandal, their polling will actually shoot up among their, their supporters. And it's very easy to say, Oh, it's because these people are so racist that they actually like it more when their politician tells a racist joke. But in reality, it's a knee jerk response to their tribe being attacked. And they would have done the same thing if their guy was accused of sexual assault or corruption, or theft, or anything else. That it's more about, oh, our bunker is under attack from the outsiders, and we all need to rally together to to defend it. There's a, there was a stat that went around after the Gulf War talking about how, like, the debate over torture, and, like, CIA torture and things like that of terror suspects, that evangelical Christians were the most pro-torture group in America. Yeah. And people kind of took this as like a damning thing because it's like, isn't Christianity based on a Middle Eastern man being tortured to death by the state over a false accusation? (laughs) It's like, like, so wouldn't you be nervous about saying that terror suspects, I'm going to use that second word strongly, suspects being tortured? But in reality, it's because the tribe matters more than the belief system. And the tribe had their guy in office and their guy had is the one who started the war 
And so any criticism of the Bush administration or anything the CIA was doing during those years is therefore an attack on Bush and therefore is an attack on Christians and therefore is an attack on Christianity. And therefore we need to be in favor of torture. Just as I think, you know, Christians are more likely to disbelieve global warming or more likely to be in favor of tax cuts. It's like, right. It doesn't matter that these beliefs are not necessarily consistent. What matters is that within our tribe, we all stick together. And so it kind of doesn't matter why we're being attacked. What matters is that we're being attacked. So yeah, we'll, we'll claim to be in favor of anything, you know, as long as it's in opposition to what the, the lefty, the godless left is out there saying. And this poll specific to Americans being in favor of torturing suspects of terror, 42% of non-churchgoers were in favor of it, which, as you say in the notes here, is really high. Uh, But it was 54% of people who attend Church Weekly say that torturing terror suspects is often or sometimes justified, all the way up to 54%. And then it jumps to 60% for white evangelicals specifically, which was the the Bush base and and now the Trump base, uh, uh, despite everything. Again, could be an entire series of podcasts about just this, (laughs) but this is where the thing is like, this is the anti-abortion president and the pro-God president, so we will forgive everything else, no matter what. And and so the fact that Trump is moderate on a lot of economic things helps somewhat because they will go along with whatever. And if and if he comes out and supports a $15 minimum wage, you could probably get the evangelicals on board with that because they've decided that whatever he says is whatever, this is what the tribe stands for now. Again, in terms of there being a lot to unpack, historians will spend the next 200 years <laughs> try, <laughs> try, trying to unpack how we got here. Um, and they... <laughs> Their answers will be varied and detailed, uh, and that will be with the benefit of retrospect, which we do not have. We're just sitting in the middle of it where there's a Washington Post story we'll link here that picks out that the most hardcore Christians in the U.S. are also much more likely to oppose increasing government assistance to the poor, which uh, among those other policies and positions you mentioned, like that, that is maybe the most Christian policy to to <laughs> to help the poor out of misery. But it's a thing that I, I we're all we're all pretty clear on now that just Christian folks in America, as a political block, not every single one of them, but the the political block as it exercises its will, is in favor of whatever the Republican Party's up to. That's what they do. Yeah, and there again, as with my example with the trolley problem and all that before, there's all sorts of ways to rationalize it. You know, it comes down to like, well, you know, if you think about it, Christianity and Jesus is all about personal responsibility. And it's about, you know, right. people being responsible for their own actions. And so really, if you think about it, if the government is providing welfare, then you're you're robbing them of responsibility. And so that goes against Christ's teachings. And Literally every every time in the, the Bible when Jesus was asked about what do we do for the poor, Jesus did not say, oh, there should be charity, and he certainly did not say there should be government welfare. He said, you must sell everything you own and give it to the poor. He right. said, if you, own two, if you own two coats, that's too many because you can only only wear one at a time. If you own two, give one away because there's somebody out there that doesn't have one. 
Yeah. Jesus said, there's no such thing as personal property. I'm trying to imagine like an evangelical Republican running on that basis that, well, you know, actually here's the exact line where he told the disciples, no, you must pool all of your money because you don't actually own anything. God owns everything. And when he ran into the rich, the rich young man, he said, sell everything and give it to the poor. Not some of your stuff, not half everything and give it to the poor. You must put yourself in poverty as long as there's a poor person out there, it is your job to give them your stuff and to look, watch them run on that platform and see how quickly they get called a communist right, or a godless <laughs> communist or a Marxist. <laughs> so yeah, a lot of these people, they have not actually read the book at all, which again, understandable. I, I get it. But understanding how you got from there to here and how we even got from where we were a hundred years ago to here to where somehow the Christian way is that when a foreigner shows up on your doorstep, it is your Christian responsibility <laughs> to kick them kick them out as violently as possible. That's a fascinating journey you have taken there from the starting point. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that might all dovetail neatly into uh, the things we've got here on morality and on polls of how Americans feel about Americans' morality. Uh, nearly 8 in 10 Americans in this poll say that American morality is getting worse. And then about half of them say that our moral values are currently poor, which is the highest since Gallup started asking this question in 2002. It's a Gallup poll. We've talked many times on this podcast about how the crime rate has gone down, the violent crime rate has gone down, attitudes have liberalized over time, attitudes like in every poll showing attitudes toward other races, toward other sexual orientations have all loosened up with time. Yet you can, the one thing that unites us is more than, you know, like four in five people or about four in five people saying, oh, this is all going to hell. That is fascinating because that has to be encompassing both sides. Right. <laughs> Statistically, yeah. <laughs> that has to include the people who think that homosexuality is evil and is corrupting marriage or traditional marriage and those who think that our tolerance of homosexuality has gone down and that we're way too mean to the gays. And somehow both of them think they're losing people on opposite sides of, of every issue. They all seem united in the idea that we're moving too far the other direction. The, the people who think that women have too many rights and the people think that sexism is out of control both say things are getting worse. That's not possible. Right. <laughs> but the internet in its miraculous ability to only surface into your view, the worst of the worst people <laughs> creates an impression that everyone is under siege. Even though acceptance of all of these things does get better with time. And my personal view is that in the long run, this will be okay because this is the friction that occurs as people are exposed to the fact that not everybody thinks like me, like this is brand new. You used to be able to isolate yourself from the world a little bit, but now that you're seeing people and seeing like abrasive people, I think there's a time where 
to use my metaphor earlier about if you were suddenly made to live with a bunch of roommates in a wallless house, I think after 30 years of that, it would be fine. You would have developed habits for getting private time for yourself. You would have developed coping mechanisms, but it would be an adjustment. And as I said, someone would probably get murdered in the course of adjusting, but it would be an adjustment. And I think we would adjust here. I think when you've got, you know, 77% saying, you know, that morality is getting worse. A lot of this is just due to things coming to light. Right. Finding out that, yeah, half of the movie stars you watched in the 80s were like sex predators. But it's not better to have kept that information hidden. And all of those stories coming out is not a sign that morality has gotten worse. It's a sign that we now notice it as being immoral and are willing to talk about it and put a stop to it. But the depravity is not new. Right. That was always there. What is new is our noticing it, talking about it, discussing it, and bringing it up into headlines where we say, oh, this was always going on. You know, so it wasn't just the Catholic Church. It wasn't just, you know, that in fact, it was everywhere and that it was an accepted part of the culture, not just in Hollywood, but in corporate America and in finance and in. You know, you can ask any woman who's worked in like a customer service job or as, as a, you know, a server in a restaurant, anything like that, the way they get treated, you know, by managers or kitchen staff or things like that. It's like, oh, this was always a nightmare and we're just now noticing it. But the appearance of it in the headlines, it's very similar to all of the people who think, well, where did all these trans people come from all of a sudden? Yeah, right. It's like, wait, why is this suddenly fashionable now? Like, like uh, people don't know if they're men or women now. What's what's going on? It's like, no, they were always there. They just now is the culture acknowledging their existence, and just now are they comfortable coming out to some degree with the fear that they will not be literally murdered for it? But please do not actually walk around thinking that the world is worse because these people are visible. And the bizarre thing that I heard my whole childhood that, oh my gosh, suddenly everybody's gay. There's all these gays. And so that created this narrative that the gays must be recruiting. Right. <laughs> well, like suddenly there weren't any gays when I went to school. I was, yeah, I went to high school in 1965. There were 6,000 kids in that school. It wasn't a single homosexual. So the fact that there's, you know, 30 gay kids in my son's school means they must be out there recruiting and, and converting our children into gays. It's like, no, you had, you had gay students. You didn't know about them because they were terrified of you. And when you say that this is a sign that things are getting worse, what you're really saying is you wish they had stayed in the closet. Off of all that, I feel like there's so much good news packed into the poll reaction from people because it means that not only is it meaningful when we do the work of talking about these important things and talking about how no gay people were not invented in 1970. They existed and, and they will just continue to exist. When we talk about these things, that that does shift attitudes and just the response of, ah, too much is changing, is people simply reacting to things improving. And I think that's that's good news. That That's a nice thing. And this is where my opinion 
breaks from most of the people on my side of things, I guess. I prefer racists who are open about being racist than the ones who have learned how to say all of the right things, but just yeah. quietly don't hire the black person when they're interviewing. The ones who don't dare out themselves is very frustrating for me. When you look at the comments of any article about race racism and see a lot of blatant racism and a lot of people telling racist jokes. And when someone says, Oh, look at what Trump has done to America. If you think that Donald Trump invented those people or their way of thinking, that's really a sheltered view of the world. If you right. think that racism had been largely defeated in America and it just popped its head up again in 2016, that's a very optimistic view. It's a very positive view, but it also is, in my opinion, intentionally ignorant because there are millions and millions of people who could have told you, oh no, all that's happening is that you are seeing it. If people think that way, I prefer that they say it because then they can at least be confronted about it. I want to know who thinks like that. Our thing, which is supposed to be, well, no, we, we don't debate racism because that should be settled. This shouldn't be up for debate. It shouldn't be up for debate. But if the alternative is that people just quietly think it and it goes unchallenged, yeah, let's debate it. Because to me, that's like the married couple who never fights and you think they have a perfect marriage, but in reality, they never fight because one of them has decided it's just, there's just no point. Like he, yeah. he, he won't listen anyway. Well, that's not a healthy marriage. I would prefer a, a couple that has productive arguments frequently right. than one that has this false sense of peace. So this is another case where it's like where all these races came out of the woodwork well, okay, a lot of these are teenagers who have just learned that this is an easy way to get your attention, and they will hopefully grow out of it and learn from it. Otherwise, it's a chance for you to examine your own beliefs and say, well, gosh, do I quietly think some of what this guy is saying? Like, am I, is this me? Am I looking in the mirror here? And it gives you a chance to, to think about it. But I, I prefer a world where people are constantly talking about these things, where they're making YouTube videos about these things, where they, where if some guy wants to go out there and say, well, the science says that the black people have a gene that makes them commit crimes. Good. Say that out loud. Now we can explain that. No, it doesn't. Now we can cite the data. Now all of the other people who think what you just said, who quietly think that there must be something, you know, kind of genetically wrong with these people. Here's a chance to talk to them because we've brought this, that, out to the surface, but it is an incredibly unpleasant conversation to have. Right. It's one that will upset a lot of people. It's one that people are scared to have, but that's kind of this whole thing in a nutshell. Is it the ignorance that we had before? I would not go back there. And I realize that it's in all of this stuff about people becoming less empathetic and they're disgusted with their fellow person and they think the world's going to hell. If this is what people were always thinking, if you have these profound disagreements with other people, I would rather expose everyone to those disagreements than to try to rewind the clock to 1980 or whatever year you think things were better 
and go back to where it's just, no, it's better when these people were just invisible. It's better when we just didn't talk about it. And the only time racists told their racist jokes is when they knew they were safely in a room full of other racists. Whereas now, no, let us catch them doing it. Let's talk about it. If it's a kid, let's explain to the kid why, you know, I know this is fun, but to, to like shock people and hear the grownups getting mad, but here's why the grownups get mad about this. Let's let's let this be a learning moment. Seems like there were all these racists, especially in like, say, 2014, but they didn't feel empowered to talk about it in public or, or they didn't feel empowered to say, well, it's just how it is, according to me. And uh, and now they are. And now we can. You're right. Now we can challenge them because there's another data point here in a Gallup poll in 2017. So uh, very recently, 33 percent of respondents said that homosexuality is immoral. So that's that's a direct judgment on a specific thing. It's, it's not like this other stat of just things are less moral. This is a third of Americans told Gallup in 2017 that being homosexual is immoral, even though it's just how people are. It's uh, very frustrating. <laughs> right. But and then here's here's the key, because you hear that stat and you say, well, Jason, how can you say that? morality is not getting worse if you have this kind of rising homophobia in America and Trump's America where he's gotten it all the way up to 33%. 33% is an all-time low. Yeah, and It used right. to be much, much higher. That You don't have to go back too many decades before you find a majority. You don't have to go back too many decades before that before you find 90 plus percent saying that homosexuality is immoral or it's an illness and then the idea of same-sex people getting married was roughly as popular as suggesting that people should be able to marry their dogs or their cars or whatever. Like, it's an absurd thing. So the 33% on one hand represents a tremendous victory. Yeah. On the other hand, if you go out on the internet and one out of every third person you run into says, oh no, homosexuality is immoral and people should feel bad about it. That is like a shock to the system because looking at the popular culture, you would get the impression that it's not even 5%. When's the last time you've heard like a popular pop song about how homosexuality is wrong? How many right. Hollywood movies are about hom a homosexual person realizing that what they're doing is immoral and then agreeing to become heterosexual instead? Yet a third, a third of the population believes that. But it is almost invisible in the popular culture. That's important. Because that one out of three, those people absolutely are doing the hiring at companies. They are police officers. Yeah. They are doctors. They are people who have power over you. They are politicians. They are even the ones that wouldn't profess these things out loud. The idea that when you walk around in the street, depending on what part of the country you're in, that one out of three, if you're gay, that one out of three, you're actually not safe to be around. Not that they're going to necessarily intentionally harm you, but that they will judge you and they do think you are a worse person and that you're doing something bad. And so when it comes time for them to recommend you for a promotion, if they're seeing you through the lens of this is a sinful, immoral, bad person, you don't think that's going to affect how they treat you in the same way that a lot of us would treat someone who you knew was like a career criminal. You would be a little less sympathetic, a little less likely to stop and help them if they were stuck on the side of the road with a flat tire 
it would affect you in all sorts of subtle ways. Even if you, their criminality didn't directly affect you, you would still like just kind of not want to be around them, not want to be their friend, not want to work with them. And that's still one out of three. And it is, it's truly amazing that pop culture and, and media just does not cater to those people. And I'm going to throw in a much less inflammatory stat. I have a stat on vegetarians and vegans that shows that the number of vegetarians, the number of both groups, the vegetarians in the subgroup, the vegans, is tiny and actually has not grown in decades. Only 5% of Americans are vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And that's actually gone down a bit in the last 20 years. Vegans are only 3% of the population. That was only 2% in 2012. So by comparison, anti-vaxxers are 10% of the population. <laughs> People think <laughs> vaccines cause autism or some other disease are 10%. Vegans are 3%. But that group yeah. is so heavily represented in pop culture that like every sitcom has a vegetarian or vegan character and seemingly half of the actors and actresses. And you would assume that that's like a quarter of the country and that it's rapidly taken over America. Every restaurant has vegan options. Every grocery store has a vegan section. Your impression from the popular culture certainly would not peg it at 3%. Well, and then especially the, the political correctness, culture war sort of thing, uh, vegetarians and vegans. I, I feel like that's a very, just common, easy thing to to be mad about if you want to be conservative, but it's also not a thing that it, it doesn't really impact other people if people are vegetarian or vegan. But also, it's like you say, a much smaller slice of the population than uh, than you would think. Again, I don't know what percentage of our, of our listenership are kind of like right right wingers, but if you are not, or if you don't have friends who are conservative, the amount of hatred of vegans, you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Like the number of t-shirts and bumper stickers excoriating vegans for being like heavy handed or they've really made a, like a public enemy out of that very small group. You could go on all day about how it's true. They have an outsized influence for whatever reason, just because of the number of famous prominent people that, that live that lifestyle. But then the internet on the right is full of these fake stories of someone that it's like, well, I was serving meat at my wedding and my vegan cousin <laughs> demanded that we have a whole separate menu for her. And it's like thinking that, that they're on the verge of banning meat. People who do not keep up with every single little Twitter outrage on in politics. There was a thing where, the young congresswoman had unveiled her Green New Deal, and part of it was that we have to get off of beef production because 20% of greenhouse emissions come from cattle or some other livestock. And then immediately on the right, on Fox News everywhere, it's like AOC wants to take away yeah. your hamburgers. They're going to ban hamburgers right. at <laughs> any moment. It's like, okay, the average American eats like six hamburgers a week. You, you're, you're not going to ban hamburgers any more than you're going to ban Christmas, the holiday that we celebrate for four consecutive months. No. <laughs> for centuries. Yeah. Is, in, is in just as secure a position as Christmas is. Or the thing that like, oh, these communists are going to get rid of capitalism. It's like capitalism is literally 
the most unstoppable thing in the history of the human species. <laughs> None of these things are in danger any more than a single ant is going to make a train run off the tracks. We'll link about it, that, that conservative trope of the Green New Deal wants to outlaw hamburgers. It sprang from a like draft set of talking points that accidentally got out that had a tongue-in-cheek line about how we can't ban hamburgers and airplanes right away. And it was really, really poorly written, but they were kidding. Like they, It was a joke that even the people in favor of the Green New Deal were like, obviously it would be insane to eliminate this, but people needed something for the tribe to be upset about. So they said, hey, the 95% of us who eat meat, we are on the, the verge of being eliminated from that somehow. And speaking of the endangered Christians who who have merely had a 2,000-year run or so, there's a, a poll here finding that 90% of Americans claim a belief in God or some kind of higher power. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be Christianity, but 90% of Americans have some sort of spiritual religious belief in a higher power, which is a lot. That's That's 9 out of 10. Yeah, and so that also means that being an atheist in America is about on the same level as being anti-vaccine. Yeah. If you're part of a 10%, which again is weird, because for instance, if you go to Reddit, you know, Reddit, which is one of the most popular sites on the internet, it is almost like there, it's presumed that everyone is atheist. Like there, yeah, any standard. reference to religion or anything is like met with jokes or anything. So you would get the impression that among young people, that it's the opposite, that it's like 10% still believe in this weird superstition and that 90% have come around to the logic of the, and boy, that's not the case. Reddit is a great example because it portrays itself as being like the front page of the internet. That's their slogan. Whereas in reality, it is a very large subculture of young male atheist, somewhat libertarian, but socially liberal. Like it's a very yeah. specific subculture that portrays itself as being the mainstream. And that's kind of how all of this works. So like <laughs> here, there was a, a stat as recently as 2012, um, you had a majority of Americans saying they would not vote for an atheist for public office. To be any, for like mayor, like even anything. Like it's like, no, they can't be trusted. And that used to be a majority as recently as 2012. 2012 was not that long ago. I know it seems like a very long time ago. <laughs> I know that 2012 feels like it was half a century ago. And then whereas that's down to just 40% now, merely 40% of America would not vote for an atheist for public office. Right. Sort of like the, the all-time low in people thinking homosexuality is immoral. Like that's, that's progress as much as we've got it. Yeah, it is. But it's also stunningly high. And so yeah. this is why to a young person, I know that all of my talk of how the past used to be worse is kind of falls on deaf ears. I get it. I do. I grew up hearing the same thing from my parents. Like, well, you know, we didn't even have air conditioning. And it's like, yeah, but whatever. It's 107 degrees in the house. I, I want the air conditioner on like that. That does not impact whether or not the air conditioner should be on now. And so for me to say that the bias against homosexuals, non-believers, all those things used to be much, much worse. They're very correct in saying, well, yeah, but it's still way too high. 33%, 40%, whatever. And that's just what people will tell a pollster. Like, that's still unacceptable. Both of those things can be true. Again, we could go into the details as to 
how this happened or why there's like some of the smears that have been attached to atheists over over the decades? If people don't remember the Cold War very well or the the ideologies there, communism was in a general way atheist. And so I I expect that at least some of our resistance to atheists specifically is because it was tied to communism. And lately, people like Lindsey Graham have been calling Justice Democrat representatives communists just straight up. So I'm, I'm curious if that'll start to become a thing where they try to, to tar them with that or tie them to that. And for instance, as I think a lot of people listening to this know, like the phrase, in God we trust, was added to the currency, not at the nation's founding, but very recently. It was during the, the Cold War. Right. That it was a reaction. That, that is an anti-Soviet sentiment. That is not a pro, you know, because in God we trust, that is a clear violation of establishment of church and state. Because you could say, well, yeah, it's not <laughs> specifying any particular religion, but it absolutely is. So, no, you clearly are establishing a religion with that. And we've just been okay with it because we were so scared of the communists and the communists were godless that we need to rally around America and the Bible, because, of course, those two things are the same thing. America is Christianity, and Christianity is American, and that's that. Yeah, it, uh, it says here, and God We Trust was added by a, a joint resolution of Congress in 1956, approved by Eisenhower. So that that's prime early Cold War time. Like, that's right when we were laying out the, the structures of what that fight would be. Those 10% of non-believers who are heavily represented in like the intellectual corners of the internet, who are heavily represented on like leftist writing and YouTube and pundits, you know, the, the way they talk about religion, like assumes that almost no one actually believes it. In other words, it's a group that's overrepresented among the talking head class. I think they vastly underestimate how important belief in the supernatural is to the average person, to the species at large. There's a reason why it's 90%. And it's not just because some, people tricked everybody there's there are psychological needs that are being met there for example there's this big overlap in types of belief about 40 percent of christians also believe psychics are real 33 percent of the population believes in reincarnation 30 percent of the population believes in astrology the type of thing they believe is not important but the fact that they believe that that the world is governed by invisible magical forces is the norm And to be part of that 10% that believes, no, what you see is what you get. Everything is just governed by science and atoms and the laws of physics. You are a fringe, you're part of a fringe belief system. You are the same percentage of people that believe that vaccines are bad for you. And if you don't understand that, if you don't keep that in mind, the world will keep surprising you because then you won't get how a hundred million people can think that a Donald Trump was sent by God to protect America. (laughs) You'll assume they're just lying. Like, well, they don't really believe that they're just saying that because they, they know it makes us mad, but okay. So what if I showed you that you could hook these people up to a lie detector test and ask them if Jesus would be anti-immigration and they say, yes, absolutely. He would want the biggest wall possible and it will show they're not lying. Like the needle doesn't move. It's like, well, then what? And if you don't understand how someone can believe those two things at the same time, then you don't understand humans. You don't understand why we need to believe that all of this is in the hands of some power that is not, that we can't see, and how that can, if applied in the wrong way, 
make you do and say objectively monstrous things. We can link to some things from history about that. And, uh, or all of history. Right. We will simply link <laughs> link to history. Yeah. Maybe off of that and, and sort of rounding us off here a bit, I, I think we would all benefit from more openness toward being surprised by the human brain and more openness toward being surprised by how people think and how people work. And because there's a couple polls here, one of them found that only 43% of Americans say that pornography is morally okay. Only 43% said, yes, that's morally fine. This is another one where it's an all-time high, an all-time change from the past. It's a Gallup poll here. But that's that's a relatively low number given, I think, sort of our expectations or maybe internet culture saying that just everyone enjoys pornography all the time. And then also that uh, that uh, surprising stat that we alluded to uh, toward the top of the show about Americans peeing in the shower. Do you want to share that one, Jason? It's such a find. It's great. Yes. Nearly 80% of Americans told pollsters they pee in the shower. 80% openly. Told pollsters that. Yeah. <laughs> about 20% say they bring a drink into the shower. I assume they meant an alcoholic drink. They bring a beer into the shower. The reason we've lumped this in with the pornography thing is because you have 43% saying porn is morally okay, and then some majority saying it's not okay with some that always, there's always that percentage is like, I don't know. I have no idea. These stats in terms of how many people use porn, you can go to the companies that distribute the porn. (laughs) They can tell you their site traffic stats. You can go to those subreddits. You can look at what percentage of Snapchat is girls selling private uh, naked sessions and go and find out people have their, their alternate Instagram accounts or whatever. And they will tell you that we're not saying every single person with access to a device uses it for porn, but it is a such a heavy majority that when there was one infamous case where a decade ago they tried to do a study with like comparing males in their 20s who regularly use porn versus ones who had never seen porn and they could not come up with a control group right (laughs) they could not find some who didn't use it now not everyone is a heavy user not everyone uses it weekly but in terms of Knowing what we know, and I'm not going to throw out a hypothetical number, but it has to be very high. And of course, some people are completely asexual. Some people are religious, true believers and absolutely would not allow themselves to go look at that thing. That's fine. But there is no question a gigantic overlap between the people who say pornography is immoral and the people who also use porn. Right. Kind of everything lies right there in the crux between... I know this is wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. Or I feel pressured to tell a pollster this, but I do it myself. Or I feel the need to heavily criticize other people because I do this thing myself. Like the 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 whole trope of the homophobic male politician who gets caught with his male lover that happens so often yeah. that it's almost like when you hear that guy being a little too loud about, you know, well, marriage, you might as well let, let people marry their goats. If they're going to like, if they're that, if they're really shrill about it, you just assume, Oh, they closeted. 
there's this thing that humans do when we're guilty of something and we kind of hate ourselves for it. Instead of thinking, you know what? Maybe this thing I'm doing is not hurting anyone. And maybe I should examine whether or not it's bad. They instead will take their self-loathing and project it outward. Right, right. This is a good example of that. Because I feel like a lot of the moralizing that happens about everything, when those people earlier on that we discussed say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, morality is just going down the toilet. They were watching a porn video while they answered that poll. (laughs) (laughs) Statistically, yeah. Because of their guilt over that or because they felt that in order to make up for their own sinfulness, they needed to try to prevent sinfulness in others or it's something that they needed to, this is where the concept of like virtue signaling comes in. There's a lot of that going on here. And I don't know to what degree, but what I can say is you probably should not pee in your shower. (laughs) like your toilet has a mechanism for flushing that away but in your shower drain there's just like a u-bend and like there's like a layer of water to keep like fumes from the sewer from coming up into your shower but there it doesn't like that urine will kind of just sit in there i think and it's not there it's not made to, to do that and also contrary to what some people believe your urine is actually very it's actually full of bacteria I know that there's this thing where they like they no urine is sterile. That's not by the time it leaves your your body, it's not. I know that it probably feels like you're saving water or something. I don't think it's recommended that you do this. Well, well, well. After all this talk of being tolerant, here comes Jason <laughs> with the anti-urine screed. Typical. And also because I'm picturing people who are not taking a shower at the time. They're just walking <laughs> past their shower stall. <laughs> <laughs> and decide to urinate into it. Maybe right. I'm picturing the wrong thing. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of what that stat says about America or what it doesn't say, as with all of these, I could only speculate. <laughs> nearly 80% when a total stranger asked them, do you pee in the shower? Nearly 80% said, oh yeah. <laughs> Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Pargin for diving into all sorts of what I am calling data, even though it's a lot of people just describing themselves to a pollster in a very specific situation, like we said. And in that way, it is incredibly revealing of, as we said, all kinds of things we think we understand and so many more questions. In our food notes, you will find Jason's fantastic column that kicked this all off. It is called 20 Facts That Will Make You Understand America or Not. And that will have many of the statistics we pulled in this show, also additional things that we drew on, such as the fact that the the fear of the Green New Deal killing all hamburgers and all airplanes was based on a misunderstood, dehumorized joke in a sort of draft of talking about it. You don't need to be so tribal about these things, folks. And of course, you will find, among other polls, the stats on people saying that they pee in the shower with enormous frequency. Uh, also, many of them bring a drink in. I like that those stats came from a poll by Angie's List about, about the shower peeing, because uh, Angie's List is a site mainly for homeowners to find contractors that they can trust. And I think of property owners as the most put together Americans. So even they are whizzing away. Very exciting. 
Also, beyond that, I want to direct you to a book pre-order opportunity because there is a 10th anniversary edition of John Dies at the End coming out in January. You know the novel John Dies at the End by Jason Parchin, who writes as David Wong. Yeah, it's great. It even became a movie and everything. It's got a new 10 years later afterward from the characters and from Jason. Also a great new cover in this new edition of the book. Pre-order links are in the footnotes. Beyond that, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. This episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media, a space where I I do see a lot of atheism, as we described. I've also been seeing a lot of astrology. There's a lot of people tweeting about, like, Leo season, you know, and I'm, I'm not a Leo, so I don't get it, but maybe you do. My own Twitter account where I I am an Aries, but I'm not going to make a thing out of it. Anyway, it's at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzagram, and I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. That's got my show dates, my fun email newsletter of free internet stuff tips, and so much more. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. When I sit down to binge watch my favorite TV show or catch the newest episode, it's always better with a pint of Ben and Jerry's. Uh, For me lately, that TV show is Grey's Anatomy. It's an excellent hospital drama that's been on for 15 seasons, so everything they talk about happening in the characters' paths is something I've seen. It's very exciting. But we're talking about ice cream right now, and Ben and Jerry's is amazing. I highly recommend that chocolate chip cookie dough that I mentioned in the middle of the show. If you're sitting down and watching your favorite thing, then you have a classic delicious ice cream with all of the elements you want, plus cookies flying in there. Isn't that nice? It is. So have that nice time. Cozy up with your favorite flavor available anywhere ice cream is sold or find a new favorite at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit earwolf.com. Earwolf.